You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Alright, so today we're going to be continuing in our series, Faithfulness in All Seasons. We're going to finish off the book of Esther. So back in August, we started with Lamentations, the faithfulness um, in seasons of sorrow. We talked about God's faithfulness in seasons of sorrow. We talked about how we are to respond faithfully in seasons of sorrow. And next week, we'll begin the book of Ezra and look at faithful hope in God's promises. That's going to be the, the next few weeks that we do. That'll lead us up to Christmas. But today, we're going to be finishing the book of Esther, faithfulness in exile. That's the theme we've been working through. That's what we've been talking through these last few weeks. We've seen the rise of Queen Esther and her cousin, or her, yeah, her cousin Mal, or Mordecai in the land of Persia. We've also seen the downfall of the king's advisor, Haman, or Haman, who plotted to kill the Jews. He's the one who influenced the king to make an, irre, an irrevocable edict, allowing the Persians to kill God's people. But this was a generations-old feud between Haman's people, his ancestors, and the Jews. But that plot was foiled. We saw that last week. The plot was foiled, that Esther approached the king and interceded for God's people um, with the king. And then we saw that Haman was killed, and Esther and Mordecai were honored by the king. And then last week, we saw that edict reversed, and protective edicts issued so that the Jews could defend themselves against the plot to kill them. That's what we saw. That's what Greg talked about last week. But today, we're going to see that laws and edicts don't change hearts and minds. There's still a conflict brewing here. And there's much more to the story. So this is today is going to be the dramatic close, the dramatic end to this whole story. It's a really unique book of the Bible here that we're going to be digging into. So where we're going to go, just if you're taking notes, the, the title of today's sermon is Faithful God, Faithful Servants. So the first 19 verses of chapter 9, we're going to be hitting verse, uh, chapters 9 and 10. So 10 is just a few verses. But chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, that's going to be our faithful God who rescues our faithful God who rescues. The second section is 9, 20 through 28. And that's going to be our faithful God celebrated. Our faithful God celebrated. And then the third one, the third division is going to be 9, 29 through the end of 10, 3. And it's, that is our faithful God and his faithful servants. So um, I'm excited. I, I'm excited to finish off this book and see where the Lord is going to lead us and, and what he will do in this time. So if you wouldn't mind, bow your head and pray with me um, for our time, and then we will dive right on in. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your provision, for your sovereignty, for your grace toward us. And we praise you for your faithfulness. We have just sung of it. We, we've, we've sung your, your praises this morning of your faithfulness. So I pray that that is the tone and the tenor of today. I pray that we would praise you for our faithfulness, that we would see that you are our faithful God who rescues us, that we are to celebrate you as our faithful God, and that you are the one who is faithful, and that leads us to be faithful servants. I pray that that would be the hallmark of what we spend our time in Scripture studying today. So, Lord, we praise you, we love you, we trust you. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's take a look at Esther chapter 9 here, verses 1 through 19. I'm going to read the first four verses here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of walk through it bit by bit. It's going to be Um, We're going to have a lot of text, a lot of chunks to work through, but we'll make it happen. So Esther, chapter 9, verses 1 through 4 here. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, 
on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and sat in the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So first here we see that the tables have turned. We see that Haman has been killed and the edict to kill the Jews has been canceled, but the people of Persia still plan to move forward with the initial plan to kill the Jews. They're still going forward. Several months passed between the canceling of the edict and the day it was supposed to take, into, take, to take effect, so the Jews then prepare to defend themselves and get ready for the attack. On the same day Haman's plot was to be enacted the Jews and the Jews killed, the script is flipped and the Jews then become victors over them. They gained mastery over those who hated them. And not only were the Persians afraid of the Jews, but also Mordecai and his rise to power, this powerful man. And we see that the Lord is with them. Verses, verse 2 says that no one could stand against them, that nobody could prevail against them. Verse 3 says that government officials were helping them. And verse 4 says that Mordecai is becoming more and more powerful. The point here, I want to there, stop here briefly. The point here is that God is not working overtly here, but he's clearly, clearly working through quieter means. Even though he appears to be absent, he is very much present. Let's keep moving through verses 5 through 15 here. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also, verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what, is further, what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews, who were, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So this is the climax of the narrative. This is, this is the, the resolution. This is the, 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 the very tense point here. The main focus here is on the survival of the Jews, of God's people. They are the ones who are delivered. But God is the one who delivers. The Jews are delivered, but God is the one who provides for them, who protects them. And then we see this violence. The Jews struck their enemies, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased with them. That's in verse 5. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Did as they pleased with them. It's not some wanton, free-for-all violence and pillaging. It's not like just craziness and pandemonium. Rather, it refers back to the, killing, to, to the king telling Haman in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 11, to quote-unquote, do with the people as you please. So this is a wholesale reversal of Haman's plans. We were, he was going to be doing with the Jews what he pleased, and now the Jews have done with his people as they pleased. We also see that Haman's ten sons are killed. Their names are in verses 7 through 9, which I skipped over because I'm not that confident. 
But this is typical. The, the typical thing is to kill, at that point, was to kill the survivors to, so that they wouldn't mount a coup or rebellion against, the new, uh, against this regime here. But we see that the violence is limited to the enemies of the Jews, just those who wanted to do them harm. So it's not, this is not just a ransacking and pillaging and rioting and craziness all over the place. This is a specific defense of, against people who are going to attack them. The violence is limited to the, just their enemies. And we see, it, remember, in verses 2 through 4, how the government officials were helping the Jews. And then it says three times that they didn't touch the plunder. The Jews were defending themselves. We see that in verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16. They weren't ransacking the place and killing everybody. They understood that this was God's victory, that there was to be no personal profit from it. That's what it means by saying they didn't touch the plunder. They didn't take anything that wasn't theirs. So then we see... 800 men killed in the capital, and a total of 75,000 around the entire empire. Um, so if you think about, if you know anything about the Persian Empire at this point, it's a very, very large thing. It takes a, a, a ton of territory. There's a ton of people under its authority and under its command. So this is a, not a big percentage of the population at all. And there's actually, I did some kind of nerding out and doing some research on this. There's some debate about how many people are here in verse 16. What exactly are we talking about here? Because a couple of sources say that it's only 10,000 people. There's a, like the Septuagint and a couple other places say that it's only 10,000 people instead of 75,000. And then there's um, a textual question about whether the word thousand may mean families. So instead of saying 75,000 people, it says 75 families of people. So that's just kind of food for thought, some things to think through. Um, the point being, it may seem like a lot of people, but consider that Haman's damage in killing all the Jews in all the Persian Empire would have been much worse, been much, much worse. And then we come to this interesting thing in verse 13. This is where I kind of, this is a, a head-scratcher for me. Esther asks that the sons of Haman be hung on the gallows, but they were already dead. So this is, we, and Greg was talking about this a few weeks ago, this is talking about displaying their bodies, which was also customary at the time. Just kind of send them up as an example and this is an interesting development because Mordecai isn't part of it. This is all Esther's doing. This is all on her. But we don't know why there's a follow-up to the first day of killing. Maybe the first day was more defensive and the second day was kind of rooting out any sympathizers or follow-up attacks, especially defending against Queen Esther, who's in the palace, and we want to make sure that she's safe. Maybe she's just finishing off a brief holy war against the enemies of God. Um, you know, it's against the enemies of God people. Or maybe... If we read this a little differently, we can see Esther as coming off as vengeful and cold-hearted, almost merciless here. There's, you see, the enemies are defeated, but she orders a follow-up attack to continue pressing that attack. So this is potentially a darker side of Esther that we don't really hear about much. See, tradition has it, an interesting turn of events. We, we meet Esther in chapter like 2, and her name is said as Hadassah. But we don't really see when her name is changed to Esther. But if we take tradition, we see that after these events take place, Esther's name, Esther is given this nickname Esther by the Persians, which is an allusion to Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love and war. So we may see that Esther has this kind of side to her that's a little different than we might want to think. Now, I will, I will say this. None of this is fact. It's all potentials and maybes. We don't have to come down on one side or the other here. It doesn't really matter all that much, but there is a point to tease out here. There's, this is the point that I want to get to here. People are complicated, and people in the Bible are very complicated. 
biblical quote-unquote heroes are complex. We see that Noah builds the ark and he endures the global flood, but then he makes a fool of himself. We see David is a great military hero. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's also an adulterer and a murderer. We see that Solomon has great wisdom, but he's also led astray and kind of goes nuts toward the end of his life. And Esther is also complex. She's a beautiful woman. She's a queen. She wins the king's heart. She's the faithful intercessor for her people. But she earns that place by spending a night with the king and pleasing him more than anyone else in the harem. Some people have referred to her as a sex slave. That's not necessarily wrong. But then she maybe mercilessly executes her enemies. She's not the example of impeccable morality or spiritual maturity. Not at all. That's not the point that the text is making here. But she is the one that God used to enact his will. The point that I'm making here is that the Bible isn't full of heroes. It's full of humans who are sinners who serve God, the true hero of Scripture. And this should comfort us. Should comfort us that God uses flawed people, not just Disney princesses and princes. So if you're flawed, you're in good company. You're out here with me. You're in the right church. We are not a group of perfect people, but we serve the one who is perfect. There is only one pure hero. The only uncomplicated one who lived perfectly, who interceded for God's people perfectly, the only one who exactly perfect who exacts perfect judgment on his enemies is Jesus. There are lots of echoes of Jesus throughout Scripture, but he's the only true king, the only true Savior, the only righteous judge who executes justice with a pure heart and with perfect timing, and the one who ushers in a beautiful celebration for eternity. That is our king, and that's what Jesus, that's what the Bible is all about. So now that we've seen this faithful God who rescues, let's talk about who, how we respond to him. We see our faithful God celebrated in verses 20 through 28. I'll summarize verses 16 through 19 by saying that they just explain the difference in when the, fa- when the feast was celebrated. See, the capital took an extra day to clear out the, those additional enemies, so they weren't quite synced up with the rural areas until the official institution of Purim. So I'll pick it up in verse 20 here. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the, on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should, be, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim after the pure. And then verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation throughout every generation in every clan province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants so we've talked about Purim we've talked about this festival this feast 
and celebration. We see that Mordecai records the events and institutes this celebration called Purim. The name comes from the Pur, the lots or the dice that were cast by Haman to determine what day he would kill the Jews. If you remember all the way back um, a few weeks ago, we talked through all that. But verse 17 here calls it a day of feast and a day of feasting and gladness. And verse 22 says, the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. But the point is here, this is a celebration. This is a, a joyful thing. Now that the killing is over, now that the Jews are safe, it's time to celebrate. And it's not a celebration of victory in battle. That's why it's the next day, not on the day of the battle itself. But, but it's a celebration of freedom and of relief. It's rest from enemies attacking, rest from threats and danger. It's a time of joy and gratitude for the Lord's provision and protecting them from a desperate situation. And then we see the community is emphasized. They're giving food and gifts to each other and to the poor. That's in verse 22. It's also a time of instruction. They're committed to keep this celebration throughout every generation. So the point that we're making here is that deliverance leads to celebration. So friends, brothers and sisters, if God has delivered you, if you are a Christian saved by the blood of Christ, are you celebrating? Is that something that's part of your life? Do you take time to celebrate the fact that your sorrow has been turned into gladness, that your mourning is now a holiday? This is why we celebrate Christmas. The promised Savior has come. And we're getting into that season. I know, I know people who are going like, to get on to me about jumping over Thanksgiving, and I'm a Thanksgiving fan as well. But it's time to start turning toward Christmas after the dark craziness of Halloween. Now it's time to get into Christmas. The joy, the brightness there. And this is also why Easter is a big deal. Our sorrow at the death of Christ on Good Friday has been turned into gladness on Easter Sunday. This is also why we celebrate communion each week. There's a joy there. There's a beauty there. There's celebration in it. There's relief. It's a time to remember, a time to reflect, a time to remind ourselves and each other that our sorrow has been turned into gladness, that we look forward to an eternal holiday. So as we head into this holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, even though this has been a weird year and things may not be exactly the same, there will probably be some good family time, probably. Probably be some good food and telling of stories or if you're a festivist guy, airing of grievances. Some laughs, some traditions. But in your hearts, in your heart, Christian, will there be joy? Will there be true joy, true gratitude? Will you celebrate with hope in the freedom that you have in Christ? Or will you let the idols of consumerism and, and, just, and the material things overshadow these eternal truths? Are you going to let temporal idols and temporal temptations tempt you away from an eternal celebration and a holiday that we have in Christ? Will you focus only on your family or will you welcome in the broader community of believers and even the poor? Will your gratitude spill over into generosity? Will you take the time to be grateful and rest in the fact that your enemy has been defeated by Christ and that you're safe in him? You're safe, secure, Will you take this opportunity to instruct your children, the next generation, about the significance of your celebrations and the beauty of the gospel in your traditions? One of the things I've been wondering about is, I'll, I'll ask, I have differently in my, in my notes here, but what will my children 
tell their children about growing up in my home? What will they pass along to my grandchildren? What will your children talk about growing up in your home? What will they celebrate? What will they talk about? When they go off to college and they talk to their friends and compare notes about what their growing up was like, what are they going to say? What are they going to value? What are they going to take with them? Brothers and sisters, we need to celebrate our faithful God who delivers his people. We need to be thankful for what he's provided and look forward with hope to our ultimate eternal celebration in heaven. So now that we've seen our faithful God who rescues and our faithful God celebrated, let's take a look at our faithful God and his faithful servants. Verse 29 of 9. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So we see that Esther confirms the order, verses 29 through 32. We see here, this is an interesting thing, that we see Esther is transformed here, or we see her transformation, I should say. That she's writing with authority here. She's no longer that young girl who was taken into the king's chambers and taken into the harem and you know, beautified and all those different things. She's now writing with authority. It's an interesting development. It's quite the transformation we see from her in chapter 2. She was Hadassah, the orphaned young woman who was adopted by her cousin and following his commands and advice. You remember Mordecai was telling her what she should and shouldn't do and kind of helping her make these decisions. But now she's the queen and she's making her own decisions. She's signing orders and affirming commands regarding practices among her people. We also see a really cool thing that Esther and Mordecai are working together here. This is important for a couple of reasons. First, it shows a man and a woman working together for the good of God and his people. There's a lot of times we separate out the men and women when we serve in the church. The men handle the men and the women handle the women. Some of us may wrongly think that the only way that men and women can work together for the glory of God is through marriage or through childbearing. But that's not the case. Here we see Esther working as a queen. Her role is not as a mother, and, and her role as a wife is not really discussed. She and Mordecai are working alongside each other for the good of God's people, and that is a good thing. Ladies, I want to speak very clearly to you here. And, and men, I would like for you to hear this as well. Ladies, your role in the kingdom is crucial. It is absolutely crucial. God has given you spiritual gifts that we need to benefit from if we are to be a healthy church body. Some may balk at the idea that Scripture restricts the office of elders to qualified men, but if we consider how many men actually become pastors, it excludes a large number of men as well. We do reserve the office of elder to qualified men. It is the only one with, with such a requirement. But let me be clear. Sisters, you are welcome to use your gifts to serve and, and to lead in any other capacity in this church. And we would welcome you to that. We rejoice that we have men and women co-leading in our community groups. We rejoice that we have incredible women as ministry leaders and serving in amazing ways. We rejoice in that. It's a beautiful thing. 
These sisters have sharpened our elders, and they've been indispensable in shaping the culture and the ministry of Redeemer Church. They've been tremendously powerful in that. So we can and we should work alongside each other in godly brotherhood and sisterhood for God's glory and for the good of God's people. That's the first thing. The second thing it shows is that people who aren't clergy, who aren't spiritual leaders, they're having a key role in redemptive history. Esther and Mordecai both have secular roles. They aren't prophets or priests or anything like that. Esther is a queen and Mordecai is a court official. But God uses them to implement his redemptive purposes for his people. And whether we intend to or not, a lot of times we think of pastors or church leaders as having eternal and kingdom significance as professional Christians. And we downplay the role of secular vocations. But Esther and Mordecai here are examples of how the priesthood of all believers is important for God's people. While it's true that pastors and church leaders should lead the church and teach and guard doctrine and rightly administer the sacraments, it doesn't mean that God's redemptive purposes are confined to clergy. Brothers and sisters, we should all live our lives with this understanding, that God is at work in our lives no matter what job we have. In the Bible, we see him working through the life of a prostitute named Rahab to begin the conquest of the promised land. He also uses a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He uses centurions and shepherds, wealthy people like Lydia and Boaz, and poor people who are beggars and widows. He uses all kinds of people, not just professional Christians. So my question for you is, do you consider your job an opportunity for ministry? Do you consider your job an opportunity for ministry? Do you believe that God can and will use you and your role for his glory, no matter what you do. There's no restrictions on that. One of the other things that we see here in verse 30 is that Esther sent out words of peace and truth to the Jews in Persia. Redeemer, let's send out words of peace and truth to our Christian brothers and sisters into a world that desperately longs for both of them. Do you speak words of peace and truth in your home? Do you speak words of peace and truth at your work? Do you speak words of peace and truth on your social media pages? This has been very convicting for me this week. One of the side effects of my pride is that I am sometimes wrong, but I am never in doubt. Just last week, I had to apologize to a guy, a disciple, because I was a voice of truth, but not peace to him. I failed, to speak on, I failed to speak the peace of Christ to him, of his acceptance in the kingdom, despite the struggles here on earth. I only spoke truth, and it was condemning to him. And I did apologize to him, and he did forgive me. I've had to apologize to the elders for saying rash things. I've had to apologize to my wife for saying foolish things. I've had to apologize to my children for being angry and harsh with my words, only speaking truth, but never but without peace in it. So I'm trying to grow in this area, trying to, trying to grow in the area of speaking truth in love. But I wonder, Redeemer, are we known as a church that speaks peace and truth? Do we only speak peace that is devoid of truth? Or do we speak peace and truth? Jesus, our King, who is faithful and true, came to speak peace to those of us who are far off and to those of us who are near. It's Revelation 19.11 and Ephesians 2. 
So church, do we speak Christ? Do we speak the full gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do we just speak doctrine, just the whole truth, nothing but the truth? Or maybe you can't handle the truth. So you speak peace only. But in that, do you speak Christ in your peace? Or do you just speak platitudes like everything happens for a reason and nod our heads when people say that God just wants us to be happy or that we'll go to heaven if we're sincere and do good things? Brothers and sisters, if we speak truth, we will speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are to speak of true peace, it must be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether we speak truth or peace, we must arrive at the gospel. Our truth must bring peace, and our peace must be grounded in the truth of the gospel. Chapter 10, these, first, these three verses bring the book to a close. There's resolution here to the story. The story conflicts are resolved. The Jews are saved. Haman and his sons are dead. Mordecai and Esther are in charge of things. We see that Esther ends on a note of relief. The season of persecution is in their rearview mirror, and they're in a good place. Finally, no more opposition for the Jews. Never again will the Jews be subject to a pagan government with a ruthless leader who hates them. Never again will they face a terrible threat of mass executions. It's only feasting and celebrations from here on out, right? Of course, that's not true. You see, as the story unfolds, as history unfolds, we see that God's people return from exile, but they never live freely again. Never. The Babylonian Empire, who sent Israel into exile, fell to the Persians, who we're talking about in this book. The Persians fell to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And the Greeks were conquered by the Ptolemies, who were conquered by the Seleucids. Then they were left alone for like a little while. But then came the Romans, who ruled Israel when Jesus was walking on the earth. And then a little while later, there were some Germans who did some things. But Esther ends on a high note. God's people are saved. And through... And even though through all the plot twists and the turntables turning in, uh, we see that all is as it should be now. And we see this faith, the faithfulness of God here. We see a faithful God caring for his people. These last three chapters show a miraculous, miraculous turn of events for God's people. If we take a look at the major plot developments in Esther, we see God's people in exile, but they're, they're coexisting peacefully with the government, kind of like Israel in Egypt before they're enslaved. Then we see a wicked man who hates God's people and sets in motion a plan to kill them. And in the book's conclusion, we see God turning that plan on its head, saving his people and extinguishing their enemies. And this seems like a surprising and sudden turn of events based on some coincidences and casting of lots, etc., but it's well in line with the ancient promises of God for his people, that they will not be wiped out and that he will protect them. We're well in line with what God has told his people. This is the same God who called Abraham, who sent Moses to rescue Israel, who led Joshua during the conquest, who raised up judges to lead in dark times, who raised up kings and prophets. This is the same God who raised up Esther and Mordecai to save his people. So the overall theme of this book is the faithfulness of God. And it's also the theme of this series that we're preaching through Lamentations and Esther and Ezra. Faithfulness of God in all seasons. And because he's faithful in all seasons, 
even seasons of exile and danger, like we've seen in the book of Esther, we can be, as, we can be faithful as well. Even when things don't make sense. Even when we can't see God clearly at work. Even in those times, we can, be, we can remain faithful. Recall from Hebrews 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And throughout Esther, there have been many times where we don't see God at work. He never is, he's never referred to throughout this entire book. But when we look at the overall arc of the story, we see his hand of provision. We see him clearly at work. And you may not be able to see the hand of God at work in your life in the small details. And you may be confused about how the twists and turns of your story point to his faithfulness and his glory. But they do. Consider the overall arc of your life from birth until now. Consider the long work of the Spirit in your heart. And be encouraged and rest assured that even though you can't always see what God is up to, He is there, He is not silent, and He is at work. He's not always evident, but He's always present. And that is a beautiful promise for us when we feel alone, when we feel bewildered, when we're tempted with hopelessness. We may not know everything that happens, or why it happens. But the comforting message of Esther is that we don't have to know it all. We simply need to know the one who does. So let's be faithful to follow him and trust that he works it out for his glory and for our good. Be faithful to follow him that way. Let's not focus on only what is visible. Rather, look to what is working behind those things. Let's remain confident in the unchanging purposes and word of God. Because God is faithful in all seasons and not just the seasons that make sense. We can have a great confidence in our intercessor Christ who turns the heart of the King of Heaven toward us in favor. Because God is faithful in all seasons, we can have a great confidence in our Savior Jesus Christ who in the same moment on the cross secured our salvation and vanquished our enemies, sin and death. And we can look forward to a beautiful celebration for eternity in heaven. That is what gives us bright hope in a season of exile here on this earth. That is what gives us peace, which surpasses understanding in these challenging times. So I want to conclude our time in Esther in the same way that I began this series from the book of Ecclesiastes, just the points that I made a few weeks ago. The first one is that God is sovereign over times and seasons. He's sovereign over all seasons, and he's faithful in all seasons, whether we are free or whether we are in exile. He's sovereign no matter what, no matter who is in the White House or whether you agree with them or not. He is sovereign over whether you are afraid of a virus or whether you think it's a hoax. Our God is faithful, and we should be faithful as well. God is sovereign over us as well. Not only is he sovereign over times and seasons, he is sovereign over us, that he is at work in the intricacies of our decisions, of our actions, of our motivations. Even something as seemingly inconsequential as wearing a mask even something as seemingly as consequential as voting for political leadership like presidents and senators and, rep and representatives. He is sovereign over us whether we like it or not and whether we realize it or not. He is sovereign over our enemies, over our allies, and over everything in between. And he works all of them for our good and for his glory. All of them. So our lives should reflect his sovereignty. Our feasts, our celebrations, our calendars. 
They should reflect his sovereignty and his glory. Do you take time to discuss what God has done in your family, in your life? Do you reflect on that at all? Do you think about what God has done, how he's led you, how he's provided for you? Consider as we move into the holiday season what it means for us to intentionally reflect on the goodness of God in your story. Maybe you've had a hard year. Many of us have. But you're still here. Your heart still beats. Your lungs still breathe. And your mind still functions. Use them for the glory of God while you live. So not only is God faithful in all, over all times, and he's sovereign over times and seasons, and he's sovereign over us, he's also faithful to his glory. Our king will not leave the guilty unpunished. And he will secure his people to the end for his name's sake. Our God will not be mocked, and he will not share his glory with another. He's faithful to his glory, and he works in the strangest, wildest, seemingly miraculous ways. And his faithfulness is what compels us to live faithfully for his glory as well. Consider this thought from a commentator, Karen Jobes. Our generation is no less a living link in, the God, in God's work in history than were Esther and Mordecai. Christ has come, but the gospel must still go out to all nations in every generation until he returns. I'm going to read that again. Our generation is no less a living link in God's work in history than were Esther and Mordecai. We are that link, brothers and sisters. We share our faith. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the glory of God and his sovereignty over all things. So let's spend the breath that God has given us worshiping him and following him and calling others to do the same. Let's not give our worship to some unworthy idol. Let's not spend our lives in service and subjugation to our wants or some other cruel taskmaster. Let's live in freedom. Let's live in joy because our God is faithful. So let's be faithful with what he's given us to do. Let's be found faithful as his people. Let's be found faithful to his glory. And let's look forward to an eternity at peace. So looking back over these last two chapters of Esther and where we've gone today, because we have a faithful God who rescues, we have a cause to celebrate, a great cause to celebrate, and therefore we can be his faithful servants.